0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. I'm David Kermode, and it's episode six, halfway through the current series. So we have a really special guest this week, Jancis Robinson, OBE, MW. Widely regarded as the world's most influential wine critic, she's been writing about wine since 1975 when I was still in very short trousers. The first person outside the trade to become a master of wine, a pioneer in so many other ways as well. I should be asking her about a life in wine. Plus, our desert island drink is Nebbiolo, most celebrated for Barolo. It's a fiendishly difficult grape to grow, which might explain why rarely pops up outside piedmont we'll talk to one of its big fans david gleave mw the boss of liberty wines to find out what makes it so special and of course we'll have the usual recommendations for medal-winning drinks the drinking hour on food fm We begin with our special guest this week described by decanter as the most respected wine critic in the world and voted the world's most influential too Uh, She was the first person outside the trade to earn the letters MW, Master of Wine, after her name, and she subsequently added OBE as well. Co-author of the Oxford Companion to Wine, the World Atlas of Wine and Wine Grapes, and quite a few others. Uh, She also runs her eponymous website and helps the Queen choose wines to serve her guests. So I'm beyond chuffed to say she's found the time to talk to us on the drinking hour. Uh, Jancis, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: It would be easy, um, though a bit lazy, to assume that you were kind of steeped in wine culture from an early age. But um, I was looking, uh, doing my research. The reverse is actually true, isn't it?
1: I know you're a very good researcher, David. Um, Yes, it is. But then I'm so old that practically none of my contemporaries were brought up with wine. I had to wait till I got to university. I went to Oxford and... It all felt very exciting um, after having been brought up in a tiny village in Cumbria. And I had a boyfriend then whose father gave him a bit too much money. And some of that was spent on whining and dining me to the extent that I actually became the restaurant correspondent of the Oxford University magazine. Um, and we went one night to a restaurant called The Rose Revive, And for some reason, I think because the name sounded lovely, we ordered a bottle of 1959 Chambol Musigny Les Amoureuses, a wine that nowadays I, I wouldn't be able to afford, but then was better than the student Planck that was my regular drinking. Um, and I, I could sense that in this liquid, there was so much, you know, there was history, geography, psychology, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get up from the table saying, right, I'm going to be a wine writer, but it certainly lit the flame. But what most people don't realise is that back then, and we're talking about the early 70s, the subjects of wine and food had nothing like the status that they have today. They were seen as being kind of terminally frivolous. You wouldn't, if I'd said to my friends, I'm going to become a wine writer, they'd have said, What a waste of an Oxford education. No. <laughs> Very different, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah, you've been writing about wine since 1975. um, And you describe that as prehistory, as far as modern wine is concerned. Uh, So what did you generally encounter back then that's so different today?
1: Well, it's more what I didn't encounter. I mean, then wine was German, or sherry, or Bordeaux, or questionable Burgundy, because we'd only just joined the EU and until then people could put any old liquid in the bottle and call it pomade or Nuit Saint-Georges or something. Um, So there was nothing like um, California, Australia, um, even Italian wine didn't have anything like the reputation and the the great array of names that we're, we're used to today. Um, it was the, the the range was just so much narrower.
0: Mm, there's a tendency, especially I think in this country, to look towards the past with kind of rose-tinted spectacles on. But this suggests otherwise. It suggests actually things have really improved a lot.
1: Oh, they have, and not, it's not just the choice and the range, but it's the quality. Honestly, when I first started drinking wine, two out of three. Bottles were technically faulty. They they smelt of chemicals. Um, you had to, if it was white, you know, you would chill it to death so that all you got was the liquid. Uh, you didn't want the smell. And uh, nowadays, I mean as you know, to find a technically faulty wine is almost impossible. The winemaking standards have risen so fast. I mean, the the, the most common fault today, I suppose is having a faulty cork which imbues the wine with a certain sort of nasty damp cardboard kind of smell mm. that not making you not really want to drink it but um, that's not the fault of the wine i mean overall the stand the quality of wine today is is amazingly high and what's a bit ironic sorry i'm getting on a hobby horse here, um, is that the the quality gap between the best and the worst wines in the world has got narrower and narrower as everyday wine becomes easily drinkable whereas the price gap between the top and the bottom of the ranks if you like has got wider and wider um I as that's a whole other subject but maybe you know it's because wine has become something that billionaires want to invest in so they've they've ramped up the prices of the most sought after wines for instance whereas at the bottom end it's a very competitive market and um most basic wine they can't really afford to um jack up the prices too much although our government does its best with its with the duties it imposes
0: yes it certainly does i mean they're talking of things we we can't um afford anymore um i read a, a a wonderful republished article last summer from your autobiography, but it was on uh, the website, recounting this lavish reception at the British Embassy in Paris in 1995 with that free-flowing 1945 Paul Roger, DRC, the works, almost ruined by a French transport strike. (laughs) It's a wonderful piece to read. I'd highly recommend it. But you you paint this vivid picture of, of... extraordinary extravagance um, is it is that just another era these days would that still happen in a
1: way but the point of that evening are you was it on Genesis robinson.com that that's really? right
0: yes that's yes
1: good. the point of the evening actually wasn't extravagance funnily enough it was we were celebrating um a half century since the armistice and the end of enmity between countries we hoped um so for instance aegon muller he got back to his vineyards and found them completely untended after the war and sort of everything growing wild but he produced this wonderful bottle of 1945 schartzoff burger that was one of the stars of the night and there were various um there was the the american ambassador to france was there hugh johnson was there in fact my fellow wine writer hugh had the idea in the first place because the, the, the vintage 1945 signalling the end of the Second World War happened to be an absolutely great vintage. So it was an excuse. It was it was a very nice, harmonious night with a historical connection. Um, it wasn't, you know, in the 80s, there was quite a vogue, I think, particularly among American wine collectors to have an event where they would they'd been collecting, say, a certain Chateau, usually a very grand chateau, and they'd invite people along to taste every single vintage. That, not necessarily to maximise pleasure, more of a sort of exhibition, really, of, of what they <laughs> they had bought. Um, but the the spirit of this evening, I would defend. It was in the British Embassy in in Paris, um, and it was it was wine is a diplomacy, David, you
0: know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's um, it's it does a, a great job at, at, at doing that. And it's, a, as I say, it's just a wonderful, um, vivid piece of, of writing as well. But aside from improvements in, in production technology, there have been some epic changes in the wine scene at the time that you've been writing about it. For example, uh, presumably there was no Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc when you were first writing about wine. Oh,
1: heavens no. No, absolutely not. Um, But I suppose in terms of, I mean, I I talked a bit about the change in the range of wines were available, but in terms of macro trends, in the 90s, for instance, I think it's true to say that most wine producers, wherever they were in the world, were trying to make copies of a very narrow range of French classics. You know, wherever they were, they'd be trying to make uh, an oak matured Chardonnay that was a kind of copy of white Burgundy. And a nice concentrated Cabernet Sauvignon that they saw as a copy of a, a famous red Bordeaux, and that got very tedious. You, I don't know if you were if you remember that, but it was very boring to have mm. exactly the same style of wine coming out of all sorts of different climates and cultures and and countries. So um, and and people were were ripping out the local grape varieties that had had centuries to get themselves used to this environment and putting these incomers from France in instead. And not surprisingly, not all of them flourished. So the, there's been a big trend away from this small group of international grape varieties back to indigenous varieties and a much wider range of grapes, which makes life a lot more interesting. And then in this century, there's been a, a sort of what you might call a flight from the, the what was fashionable in the nineties, which was high alcohol, lots of obvious oak, um, lots of colour. And now people, uh, to my delight, um, producers are much more trying to make a, a faithful expression of their particular bit of of the globe, rather than a copy of something French. Um, so and alcohols, <laughs> they're trying to make less alcoholic wine, but of course the climate isn't helping them because it's getting warmer and warmer and grapes are getting riper and riper and that produces more and more sugar. Which you ferment into alcohol, but they're doing their damnedest to, to stop to counter that trend. So much more freshness, and then also much more wholemeal ways of growing vines. You know, the, the era of agrochemicals seeming to be um, the solution to all problems is over. A m- far more organic, uh, organic cultivation of the vine, um, and sort of natural yeasts rather than adding. Specially cultured yeast. It's in a way, I I mean, there's so many wine producers who've said to me um, what we're trying to do is the opposite of what my father did and go back to what my grandfather did, i.e., you know, just after the the, um, in the 60s in particular, there was this great reverence for technology and scientific progress. And people thought that that chemistry and could help solve problems. And now the, it's, mu- it's a much more natural form of winemaking.
0: So if someone wants to make a wine that uh, would uh, appeal to you, um, what um, you may have just described it, but what should they be looking to do?
1: Fiddle about with it as little as possible. Um, put all the emphasis on the grapes and growing vines that are balanced and happy with where they are, not forced and with nice deep roots so that they have access to just about the right amount of water and and a, and a wine that's interesting that that has a message that's that come that's very obviously uh, communicates where it's where it's come from but it, it, I mean sometimes people say to me oh what's your favorite wine I'd be I couldn't possibly answer that question but I mean it's more isn't it amazing that the fermented fruit of the the fermented juice of a single fruit, the grape, can produce this vast array of different flavours and styles. Uh, in
0: 1984, you were the first non-wine trade person to earn those letters NW, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, I'm wondering if you were one of the first women to also achieve that?
1: Not especially. I think I was something like the 10th woman or so. There are a couple of, of... Women masters of wine in this who passed these horrible week long exams in the 70s, and then there was a great rush of women in the early 80s. Yeah, um, so it's and nowadays, um, it's just amazing the number of people who sign up to do the master of wine study course. Far more students, MW students, than there are actually MWs now, and they're from all over the world. And it is, it's a real trial. I mean, it you know, you, you're tested. Mm. Not just on your writing and your knowledge, but on your tasting ability. You've got you, there are three papers where you walk into the exam room and there are twelve glasses in front of you, and you've got to you know nothing about them, and you've got to assess and identify them as closely as possible, and answer all sorts of questions about them. And as the wine world expands, of course, so does the syllabus. So. Um, I'm, I'm not at all sure I could pass it today. <laughs> I'm
0: sure you could. But anyway, um, you were pregnant when you passed yes. the MW exams. And you, you write that you think that that may actually perversely have helped. Uh, that would surprise a lot of people. How, how do you think it helped?
1: I think it helped. Well, uh, as, as women will, who've had children will know, your taste becomes very, very sensitive um when you're pregnant so i was tasting pretty well i was also practicing like mad because it's it's a bit like an olympic sport you need to be in condition for the for a blind tasting exam Um, and also i wasn't tempted to actually drink the stuff you know i think that probably there were some desperate people in the exam room who kind of got a bit confused and thought they'd console themselves with a a mouthful of it but (laughs) i felt like spitting the whole lot out the child who who I was carrying then has turned out to be the one of our three who is most interested in wine.
0: <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, well you, you've been very supportive um, of uh, those uh, who have been um, victims of, of sexism in, in the wine trade. Um, and more broadly, I'm, I'm sure, than just the wine trade. But um, you seem also from uh, everything you've said to have uh, escaped that uh, misfortune yourself over the years.
1: I've been very, very lucky um, not to have consciously experienced any discrimination at all. In fact, sometimes the reverse. There was a great rash of articles in the 1980s about female wine writers. I think that the, that, uh, but I think that a lot of women, particularly in hospitality, experience a terrible degree of sexism and sexual harassment. It's fully unaware of, because I've never actually experienced it myself. So I do feel a responsibility to call it out and hi, and, and support women in, in wine. I think it's my, my luck is that I've never had to sell wine um, and I've never worked in a, say, a, a restaurant or, or even a, a wine company. I've never worked in the wine trade. I'm a I'm a kind of parasite on the wine trade commenting <laughs> about it. Um, so and of course, wine producers want to be nice to me because they want a nice high score and, you know, on their wines and things like that. So um, I, I've been very, very lucky, but not all women have.
0: And more recently, you've spoken about the importance of diversity in the wine world as well. Mm. And you followed that mm. with uh, your own uh, kind of course of action. T- tell us about what you're doing and, and why you were motivated to do it.
1: I'm, I'm shamed that it's taken me so long to realise how white the world of wine is. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, you just grow up in something and therefore you don't notice it. And I think uh, I first sort of came, realized this head on a few years ago. We were we were filming um, a a film which is actually going to be premiered in the um, Tribeca Film Festival in New York in June, which is called Blind Ambition, about four amazing Zimbabweans who were economic migrants to South Africa, not brought up with wine at all, turned out to be brilliant tasters. Each became a sommelier at, at one of South Africa's top restaurants. And they competed in the World Wine Tasting Championships. And, and I think the people who've made the film have gone back to the villages they come from and things like that. I can't wait to see it. And, and that just made me verbalize, I suppose, my distaste at how white the wine world is and how few breaks we're giving to massive swathes of the population. So I've written a bit about it and um, together with uh, a colleague, Mags Janjo, who's in the wine trade, we've um, uh, we have a a website called BAMEWineProfessionals.co.uk, which is a kind of register of all sorts of, of ethnically diverse members of the UK wine trade, uh, hoping that people will add them to their invitation lists, for instance, and think of them when they're recruiting. And also we highlight on that all sorts of opportunities um, that there are. And in fact, because it does seem as though uh, the UK wine traders sort of suddenly become as aware of this problem as I am. And for instance, at the moment, I'm very busy judging an incredible scheme, which is going to offer two BIPOC or BAME, the terminology is a nightmare, um, Mm. candidates, uh, a scholarship worth £55,000 each to do either the Master of Wine or the Master Sommelier exams, um, together with a whole slew of top quality internships and mentorships and all the rest. And... Um, compensate them for their income when they're studying, um, and we've, not surprisingly, there have been quite a lot of applicants for this. Mm, um, sure, forty-two from around the world that we're just picking through and trying to select about eight for a Zoom interview, and then we'll select the final two. So, and the the, the applications have just some wonderful stories, eye-opening stories, um, and and I think I mean quite apart from the fact that it's morally right to open up this wonderful world of wine to everybody. I think it's a good thing for the wine trade, too, because it's going to open up all sorts of segments of society who perhaps didn't think of wine as their drink before. But with any luck, it will it'll just have a very positive effect for everybody.
0: Well, let's hope so. And it's a, a really um, you know, important and, and, and worthwhile uh, initiative, too. So you're t- to be applauded. For that. Well, no.
1: Um, what, what I, you... I, it wasn't my idea. These scholarships are uh, the idea of someone called Lewis Chester, who has a, a, a wine investment sort of and information website. Um, but anyway, it's a great idea, and it's exposed yeah. me to all sorts of wonderful stories. And your uh, role with
0: the royal household must have um, done similar. I, I don't know how much you can say about that without we don't want you sent to the tower. But uh, no, well, well
1: to... I, 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 there is an article on diancerthomson.com, and and I obviously had to run that past the palace, and you know, make sure they were happy about it. Um, but much to my dismay about and, and it was published in the Financial Times actually for which I write every Saturday and then much to my dismay a few years later because I think I wrote it probably in about 2013 or 14 something like that um, the Daily Mail lifted it wholesale with a whole load of photographs of me a double page spread making it look as though it had come from me uh-huh. and of course, an article in The Daily Mail looks a little different to an article in the FT. Mm. And um, I think my fellow members of the Royal Household Wine Tasting Committee were horrified thinking I'd sold my story to the Daily Mail. Of course, I didn't have any didn't know anything at all about it. Um, but that's the way of of the press. Anyway, it's fun. Um, of, although of course we haven't had any, and it also what I love about it, it, it we make our selections based on blind tastings i.e. tasting wines where you don't know what they are and I love doing that because you don't have any preconceptions you're just focused on the quality of the wine in the bottle so actually those those tastings at Buckingham Palace are some of the few that I can do nowadays that are absolutely blind but of course we haven't been able to hold any you know for a month for well over a year and I don't know when we'll be holding our, our next one and of course, and the palace hasn't been able to entertain, so the stocks won't have been running low. So there probably isn't a lot of pressure to do do another tasting, actually.
0: Yeah. And this is, you're choosing things for functions. You're not choosing what yeah. uh, that, that Her Majesty has on a Saturday night or, or, or whatever.
1: Uh, well, I dare say, she, I, I don't know how many casual saturday night suppers the poor old queen gets to have actually in a normal year probably not that many no choosing wines for all sorts of occasions you know and the great volume of wine is for very big receptions
0: yeah you're married to a silhouette uh, famously uh, if you go onto your website because uh, nick nick landers uh, your husband's articles are, are on the site He's, he's uh, always uh, silhouetted, so he's not identified, uh, as is the case uh, with, uh, with most, um, if not all, uh, leading restaurant critics. Um, when you dine together, um, who gets the wine list?
1: In France, pretty much routine him, um, unless it's a very um, cosmopolitan sommelier who might recognise me. Um, in London, probably more often me than him. Um if it's uh if it's if it's got a, a kind of wine savvy um waiter um but it is crazy, isn't it well and if Nick handed the wine list, he just immediately hands it to me last night for the first time, for ages I had dinner with a, a wine professional who sells millions of pounds worth of wine a week, probably well certainly a year um and he. He he was handed the wine list, and he handed it straight to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I love the fact that that happens. I just and it's terrible, but it's also just it is actually. Quite funny as well, in yes. in, a, in, a, in a terrible way. I'm not going to ask you what your favourite wine is because it's yeah. very tempting to do that. But you've already said uh, you you can't answer that question, so I'm not even going not. Not to even going to dare. But, but I do I do really appreciate you giving up. Uh, I know you're extraordinarily busy, so I really appreciate your time uh, talking to us on the Drinking Hour. It's it's always a, a pleasure to uh, to talk to you, Janice.
1: Well, a pleasure for me. Thank you very much.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So it's time for our first trio of medal-winning wines and spirits. First up, one of the real pioneers of English sparkling, Ridgeview, set up by Mike Roberts, MBE, and now run by his daughter Tamara, with son Simon Roberts as winemaker. Ridgeview Fitzrovia Rose Brute, non-vintage, won a silver medal with 93 points, with the judges describing an elegant example with fine, delicate bubbles, full of pure red fruit, cream and hazelnut character, balanced and well-rounded. And that is £31.50 at ridgeview.co.uk. Next, a gold outstanding gin with 98 points, Stranger & Sons Indian Spirited Gin, which comes from Goa, was described like this, bold, bright citrus flavours stand out on the nose, supported by floral notes and hints of earth, spice, and sweetness. Harmonious and intense on the palate with extraordinary refinement, producing a delectable, long, spicy finish. It's really getting popular in the UK, this particular gin. And this is £34.75 at thewhiskeyexchange.com. And an Italian red, a Barbera Nizza. With a silver medal and 93 points. Isabella della Croce, Augusta Nizza DOCG 2016, described as rich with flavours of blackberry and cherry and a hint of menthol. Savoury and leather notes on the palate illustrate well integrated oak. Excellent typicity and generosity with good fruit definition, said the judges, and that one is 25 quid at Petersham Cellar. The drinking hour on Food Fm. Now it's time for our desert island drink, where we invite a leading professional to share with us their passion for a particular grape variety, a wine, a whole region, or a spirit. Making his choice for us today is Master of Wine David Gleave. Who's the boss of Liberty Wines? Voted the IWSC 2021 Wine Distributor of the Year. Uh, firstly, David, welcome and congratulations on that accolade. Thank you very much, David. You've chosen Nebbiolo as your desert island grape. Uh, tell us why.
2: I think it's. I mean, I first visited Barolo, which is that the sort of the home, if you like, or the heartland of Nebbiolo, um, in in 1983. So you know, it's just 30. Um, almost 38 years ago, and I'm more fascinated in the variety today um, than I was back then um, because I think it's just—it's just—it's it's got so many shapes. It's—it's it's got a, an amazing sort of intensity, um, an aromatic complexity, um, and a real delicacy that just—it uh, makes it endlessly fascinating. I've never got tired of it, and I. I said, it's almost like the more I drink, the the more I want to drink. So uh, I think it's a variety that um, that's just um, has so much for, for everyone. So that's why um, on a desert island, you could never get tired of it.
0: Ah, well, that's a very good choice then. Was there a particular epiphany uh, in 1983 with Nebbiolo? Because it does tend to charm people, doesn't it?
2: It does. I, I mean, I know some a very good friend of mine, Michael Hill Smith, um, of Sean Smith in Australia. It took me close to 30 years to convince him of the merits of, of Nebbiolo. Um, but once he finally sort of found, found it, he, he, um, he's never stopped buying it. But um, for me, I think, you know, my great mentor in the wine business was a guy, uh, chap called Nick Belfridge, who wrote a couple of books on Italian wine. And you know knows more um, has forgotten more about Italy than most people know, and (laughs) he introduced me to Nebbiolo in the um, early 1980s. And in those days, the style was very different to the way it is today. But I can remember some of those. You know, it it's a sign of how things have changed that the the vintage that was current in say 1983, were was 1971 and 1974. Um, and those wines were, you know, they were older fashioned. They had a slightly boverly character on the nose. They'd been aged for a long time in barrel, um, but there was something there that just was was intriguing. Um, I suppose as far as a particular epiphany, um, there was. A, I really remember a a brilliant as nineteen seventy one um, Barolo from the um, San Giuseppe vineyard from a producer called Cavalotto, um, and it just. Sort of hinted to me at what Nebbiolo could be, and I think you know Cavallotto still make you know outstanding wines, um, but so do any number of other producers in in the region. Back in those days, there were a handful of producers who made good wines. Today, there's well over a hundred, I'd say.
0: Would it be fair to describe Nebbiolo as a slightly mercurial variety, um, sometimes sublime, frequently sublime? sometimes a bit trickier
2: yeah i think that's a that's a a very fair description um it's um i think probably angelo gaia put it best he's of course the probably the best known producer in in barolo and barbaresco and 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 one of the best known in in italy and has done a huge amount for for italian wine and i remember asking him once this was you know probably 30 years ago i said uh, do you think because he's planted chardonnay and cabernet i think do you think you'll ever plant Pinot Noir? And he, 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 he speaks very good English. And he said, said to me, he said, no, emphatically. He said, I already have one bastard in the vineyard. I don't need another. And, and I think that is very much sort of um, Nebbiolo. Uh, it is very difficult to grow, very difficult in the winery, requires um, incredible skill in the vineyard. Um, and then careful careful attention um, in the winery Um, if you get it right and and if it's planted in the right site because you know most varieties are very sensitive to site but some it must be said are more forgiving than others and Naviolo is very unforgiving if it's planted in the wrong site if that site is too the soil is too fertile um, if it's a cooler site, it won't ripen. If it's a warm site, you won't get the aromatic um, expression that you're looking for. So it is very, very sensitive and and very pernickety, I think. So um, I think even from the right site, you know, you have people who, who just struggle. With the, with the complexity of making good, uh, good nebbiola. So I think it is, certainly mercurial is a polite way of describing it.
0: Yes, a sort of pre donna of grapes possibly uh, might be a, a, a better way of describing it. I mean, it's, as you say, notoriously precious about where it will grow well. Is that why we don't find it? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it from anywhere else. I'm sure you may well have done, but it, it, it's not a widely planted grape, is it?
2: No, it's not, and you know its homeland is is probably northern uh, Piemonte or or even Valtellina, which is up sort of north of Milan on the Swiss border. Um, and it's you know if you if you go back to the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, um, the bit the most wines being made from Nebbiolo were up between uh, Milan and Turin. So that would be around the town of Biella where you have areas like uh, Lesona, Gatinara and Bocca. Um, you know, they, they, they were very famous. Barolo and Barbaresco were difficult to get to in those days, they were in sort of Southern Piemonte in a sort of hilly sort of rather sort of isolated area. Whereas those other areas around Tanabiella were, were closer to the sort of the, the, the bigger cities. So they had a ready market. It's expanded into um, you know, the, the Lange Hills now, which is Barolo and Barbaresco, and does arguably makes its greatest wines there. Um, but if you look around the rest of the world, there's a few people making it in Australia. There's a couple of very good examples in the Adelaide Hills, um, funnily enough, in, in South Australia, uh, including from a producer called uh, Steve Panel, who um, is you know, famous for his Grenache, but he did a vintage once in, in, in Barolo and absolutely loves the variety. So he has, um, has carried on sort of doing battle with it, and makes a really, really good example. Um, there are, I, I know I've tasted a little bit in, in Argentina, but I don't think it's ever been successful and you know there's a, a an old italian family in california called the segazios who uh they planted sangiovese they planted lots of other uh italian varieties uh in sort of nod to their italian heritage they tried nebbiolo and gave up they just said it's impossible we can't possibly ripen it or get what we want um here so it it, it yeah i think you're talking about a handful of people outside piemonte who who, who make it um, so, yeah, it is. It is I, th- I think that attests to uh, the difficulty of growing and making um,
0: wines from that variety. Yeah. So what makes Piemonte so special? Is there something in the terroir there that, that really shines for Nebbiolo? Um,
2: that's a really, really good question. I think, you know, you have different soils in northern Piemonte than you have in, in, in the Lange. You have a bit more clay in the, in the soil in the Lange, and that gives you more... Um, Bit more tannin and structure to the wines, so you know even there you've got distinct soils where it performs. I think it's it's um, it needs a long growing season because it's always the first variety to to bud and the last to ripen. So you know you, you if you have late spring frosts as we've had this year, um, then that's difficult for Nebbiolo. If you have a region where you know winter rains come or autumn rains come early, then that's difficult for Nebbiolo. Um, so the you know the climate is important and that growing condition means you know growing the growing season the long growing season means you need um, you know a site that's going to give you that um, and I think at the in the Langy you tend to get that a little bit because of altitude a lot of the great vineyards are you know three three to four hundred meters above sea level um, So I think that's that's a major factor um, it's um, I th- again it's difficult in the vineyard so if the soil, is too fertile, that is really going to be a problem. There are some sort of varieties which can cope with fertility or in the soil, or you know will auto adjust when Nebbiolo isn't one of them. So uh, um, I mm-hmm. think there's probably a number of factors uh, you know, to, that explain why it is um, difficult to grow. And I think if, like Pinot, and this is a real important factor, um, it will not ripen. Uh, If you have fairly high yields, you know, grapes like Chardonnay and Cabernet will do all right, you know, because they're pretty sort of resistant. But, you know, Pinot and Nebbiolo, which, you know, if you have an unripe Nebbiolo, um, it's a bit like, uh, you know, I think someone once described Paolo De Marchi from Isola Olena in Chianti. He once described the first wines he made in the 1970s as a bit like sort of um, something like um, sandpaper and lemon juice. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I, I think you know, that gives you the horrible concept of what those wines tasted like. And I think Nebbiolo is very prone to taste like
0: that if it's not ripe. It certainly does. Uh, would your perfect Nebbiolo be a Barolo then? Oh, that's a that's that's a, a, a difficult question
2: because I've I've you know some of the greatest Nebbiolos I've tasted have been from Barbaresco as well. Um, generally speaking, yes. But you know, there's also been a a sort of renaissance of 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 the wines of northern Piemonte and you know those wines up there they're a bit lighter a bit more supple than Nebbiolo um than, than, than Barolo but goodness me that this the 2014 sort of uh Lusona from a particular producer the there's a Gattinara from the the great great Barolo producer Giacomo Conterno, um is now run by Roberto Conterno. he bought an estate up in Gatinara a few years ago, and the wines he's making out there are exceptional as well. So I think you know if you can get the right. I think it's more a matter of the person than the and the producer than the zone. Uh, I think it's a bit like with again. I keep making this comparison with Pinot Noir and perhaps in Burgundy. You know, to me it's more about the style made by the producer than always you know where they um the the village are going to come from i hope that makes sense uh,
0: looking at it does yeah no it it really does and it's um it was a uh you know almost an unfair question really because as i understand it um the uh the 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 kind of halo around barolo with the um greater recognition that that name has has really uh, benefited barbaresco as well
2: yeah yeah it has it has um but i mean it's always interesting to look at producers like gaia and bruno jacosa two of the great names of uh, of, of the region um, who make wines both in barbaresco and in barolo and to taste their wines side by side because they are um, you know, they're all they're, they're, they're both outstanding and it's it's just you know it's a bit like is your favorite fish sort of yeah you know, Turbot or Dover Soul, um, you know, it's sort of you, you, it's they're both brilliant. So it depends on the occasion. Um, but I think Barbaresco is smaller. It's it's quite a bit smaller, probably a third of the size of Barolo. So you see more Barolo in the market. So I think that's helped to to pull Barbaresco up as well.
0: The latest Livex figures suggest that uh, the wines of Piedmont uh, are enjoying a real boom at the moment in the fine wine market. That's something you're seeing uh, as a, a distributor, as an importer, is it?
2: Absolutely, yeah, and and it's been growing for a number of years. Um, I think you know there, there were some of us sort of slight you know voices or wail wailings in the wilderness, um, you know, for for years, tried to say to people these are great wines, and um, you know people go yes, 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 they're fine. They'll sell them in Italian restaurants, but I think it was with probably 2010 vintage that people in the outside world started to sort of um, realize, wow, these wines are quite special. And I think there's a number of factors. Uh, I think one is there's a generation of people who have broad palates. You know, they're brought up tasting lots of different things and they want to have Barolo and Barbaresco in their cellar. And the number of people who've said to me, I'm selling a lot of my Bordeaux so I can buy more Italian wine because, yes, I want to have Bordeaux. I love the wines of Bordeaux, but life's too short just to drink one style of wine. Whereas I think, say, 30 years ago, you know, when I, um, or 40 years ago, goodness, when I first came into the business, um, you know, there was definitely uh, there wasn't as much fine wine outside the classic regions of, of, let's say, even, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux. You know, Barolo has definitely stepped up into that league. And I think also with that has come, uh, that's partly been driven by a, a revolution in quality. Better viticulture and better winemaking, and the wines today are, street, in my view, streets ahead of where they where they were, um, you know, three or four decades ago, and and that makes them really exciting. Um, and and they've, the producers have taken that responsibility of higher prices very seriously, and they look to try to make better wines um, each year. And I think they've been helped by the fact that there's some been some. know outstanding vintages in the last decade 2008 was very good 09 was right and forward 10 was stunning and then the you know the most last year's release 2016 is i think i can't think of a better vintage um, that I've mm. seen in, in the last four decades in 2016. So just, they're, they're they're ripe yet fresh
0: and beautifully aromatic. And some are still available amazingly, aren't they? So that, which is, is pretty remarkable for a, yeah. people, an exceptional yeah. vintage like that. We always end this chat by showing off um, the best Nebbiolo you've ever tasted. You may have mentioned it already with your epiphany. I don't know.
2: Ooh, um, that, is a, that is such a difficult question. You know, if I were to drop a short list, there would be, definitely, um, you know, from Bruno Giacosa and, and, you know, I have no commercial connection with them. I just love their wines. You know, their Barbaresco from the Azili vineyard is, is absolutely fabulous the barolo red label is is outstanding the Giacomo Conterno wines especially their monfortino are just you know wonderfully powerful yet delicate wines um, angelo gaia i think makes outstanding wines the eastern valley of of Lunga, and that's where angelo gaia has his vineyard where bruno Giacosa has his and i think there's a, a vineyard there called vigna rionda which you know if they were ever to do in barolo what they've done in burgundy and, and make a, a section of Grand Cru vineyards, then Vigna vineyard would certainly be one. And I think, um, you know, when I when I drink, rarely drink, but when I do drink the, um, the Vigna Rionda from Masolino, um, a, a producer who had been in Saralunga for over 130 years, just um, sort of, to me, distills the essence of, um, of, of, of Barolo. And I think that their 2014, um, Barolo Vigna Rionda is, um, is, is superb because it's also people think, oh, 2014, we don't like that as a vintage. It wasn't that good. Whereas for Nebbiolo, it was a really good vintage because it's it people picked into late October and sometimes early November. So it was a long, long growing season. It wasn't a great summer. The vintage was saved by September and October. Good weather in September and October. And that's, a, mm. that's part of the sort of magic and um, uh, what should I say the, yeah the individuality of Nebbiolo, that it is able to um, you know produce wines in, in, in years like that that are difficult because of its late ripening
0: uh, nature. So I think that's the wine I'd probably choose. Okay well Mercurial, as we said earlier on. Um, thank you very much David. It's always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you David. The drinking hour on Food FM You're listening to the drinking hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And there's just time for three more medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. A gold first from Rioja Vega, Edición Limitada Tempranillo Graziano Crianza, 2017, described by the judges as a classic style and all the better for it laden with layers of spice cocoa figs toffee and forest fruits this is a monolithic style but tempered by graphite minerality with its fresh acidity this one could run and run love that tasting note that's 13.95 showing once again what incredible value there is to be had in Rioja for a gold medal winner a Pinotage South Africa's distinctive grape from its oldest winery Groot Constantia their Pinotage 2018 bursts with a cascade of clean cherry, seduced by earthy tones with a deep, dark fruit finish, tucked in by fresh acidity. And that is £19.60 at vinum.co.uk. And finally, for this week, a silver medal-winning whisky from Glenmorangie, the Nectar d'Or Silver Malt Scotch Whisky. The judges said... White and red currant aromas intertwine with a restrained orange liqueur character and crushed flowers. Sweetly citrusy with a dusting of white pepper. This is oozing luxury and allure. This particular whisky is finished, meaning it spends some time in casks that previously held Sauternes, giving it a sweet marmalade note to the whisky. That's £50.95 at masterofmalt.com. And that is it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. If you liked what you heard, please do tune in again. And if you're listening via iTunes, we'd be really grateful. Uh, this is the begging part. Uh, if you give us a five star rating, as it really helps. Uh, you can contact us on email at the drinking hour at foodfmradio.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter or both at foodfmradio. And I'm at Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.